St. Paul says, Death, where is your sting? Christians believe in the resurrection of the body. Christians hope in the reality of heaven. But how can this authentic Christian hope exist alongside such sadness and feelings of loss when someone we love dies? Two of the most striking words in the entire Bible are, Jesus wept. Even this eternal God, who became man, wept over the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Walk with us as we explore death and the feelings of loss by those of us left behind. I am Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. Hey listeners, I'm sorry that we've been on a brief hiatus these last few weeks. We're trying to get together the final episodes of the season. I have to say though, recording the season of How We Grieve has just been so rewarding and I've really appreciated hearing all of your feedback. I'd also love hearing from you about the stories that we should be telling. But back to the episode. Part of the delay was a few weeks ago our producer, Jay Lampart, got a call. If you do it on Saturday and the cemetery is on Monday, I can come. If you do the viewing on Monday, I cannot come at all. I would have to not do anything until Tuesday. Monday I can go to work at 5 in the morning and meet you at the cemetery at 11 or 12 o'clock when you get there. But I can't take that whole day off. So this week, I'm going to turn over the mic to Jay so he can share a conversation he had with his mom, Farah, or as he affectionately calls her, Ma. No matter how old a person gets or how much they plan ahead, funerals are never simple. You still have to meet with the funeral director to finalize details. Sometimes you have to book a place to stay, find someone to watch the kids while you're out making arrangements, find a restaurant able to accommodate everyone on such short notice, And when you have to take the body across state lines, coordinate a burial that the remaining family members who are now spread out all across the country can attend. So, and my brother's not coming, according to him, when I talked to him last night, he's not coming. But I'm sure. See, they'll do it on a Friday, they'll do it on a Friday because they don't have any vigil masses. This is probably going to sound cynical, but apart from those little things that can seem like a nuisance at the time, my grandmother's passing this summer couldn't have gone better. She was elderly and died of natural causes. And when her time was growing short, we were able to prepare ourselves and say our final goodbyes. And even though her mind was gone due to dementia, her death was very, very natural. So natural that I figured losing her would be easy. Simple. But it wasn't. Not only that, my grandmother's death was symbolic. In the past year, I was back in New York for two funerals. After we buried my Aunt Josephine and my Uncle Tony, my grandmother, she was the last one left. It marked a moment in history for our family, the end of a generation. A generation that did things differently and held the family together in a way that's foreign to anyone who has not experienced this themselves. My grandmother was also special to me because, like the show All in the Family, for many years we all lived together in this modest Tudor home in Queens, New York. My dad worked a lot, so she practically raised me as a child along with my mother. Here's my mom, Farrah, to tell you more. Just start at the beginning. So, I grew up in a neighborhood in Queens. I was born in Brooklyn. My mom had me at a little bit later age for back then, going to say 32. And we grew up Catholic. I would say pretty steady Catholic. Went to church every Sunday, um, you know, all that. And I always um, thought it was funny. I, I don't know. I like to start these things off a little lighthearted. Talk about how she used to curse through the rosary. 
I just always thought that was well funny. I wouldn't say like really bad curse words but like when when dad and I would go somewhere and she'd be in the back seat and Christian would be in the back seat and she uh, actually she was in the front seat and she'd be saying oh, I'm gonna say my rosary because we were all talking and and she'd be saying it and we'd be talking and she'd be going oh will you be quiet Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Jay, will you shut up? <laughs> I was like, it was really, she was really something. There was no one else like her. No, no there wasn't. But um, as far as any siblings, I did not. I was an only child. And I know a lot of only children I speak to really liked being an only child, but it was it was lonely because... I came from a big Italian family, and I had lots of cousins, and all my cousins had siblings. And I had a friend, my best friend, Karen. Um, she lived around the corner from me, and she had three brothers. And then later on in life, her mom had another baby. So sometimes Karen would come over to my house and We'd be playing, and she'd say, I'm going to go home. It's too quiet here. And that would make me feel so bad. And sometimes we'd be walking down the street. I remember in Brooklyn with my mom and my grandmother, and we'd run into some people that my mom knew, relative or a friend, that, they, that she hadn't seen in a long time. And they'd say, oh, hi, Mary. You know, how are you? Is this your daughter? And my mom would say, yep, this is my daughter. And they'd say, oh, is she the only one? And my mom would say, yep, that's all that God gave me. And they would say, oh, that's a shame. And I would be standing there thinking something was terribly wrong with me. So I never really was like at peace with being an only child. But you weren't an only child by choice, correct? Right, correct. No, my mom, actually, I was the first pregnancy and child, and then my mom had a miscarriage. And then a year or two later, I must have been about four, she had an ectopic pregnancy, and this was back in like 1958. So that was a big deal, and she didn't know what it was. She just thought she was, she was having a very bad stomach ache. And then she started to pass out. So my dad took her to the hospital, and it was, I would say by 20 minutes, it would have been fatal. She would have been gone. So I remember it was like around dinner time, and I was sitting in the other room watching cartoons, and I heard my dad come back and he was in the hallway talking because my grandmother and my aunt ran up to him and said, how is everything? And he said, not good, we almost lost her. And I heard that, and I think that was the beginning of, oh my gosh, I never thought that could happen. I could lose my mom. And I always hated when she was like out of my sight. I always looked to her for, for everything, for comfort, for care, for everything. I didn't go to college, but I did get married young, and I married the boy around the corner, 
So we lived with my parents for a while, and we moved to Pennsylvania briefly and moved back because I was homesick. Then I got pregnant, had my first child, and uh, I was so glad my mom was around to be with me with that. So I had my first, then I had my second when we bought our house in Long Island. And that's where we lived for the next 12 years in Long Island. So my husband was working for a personnel company in Manhattan and this man owned the company and he was ready to retire. And he wanted my husband, Jay, to take over the company. So we were living in Long Island where the taxes were sky high and this job would have been all on commission and we were, were not comfortable with that. So we decided to go back to Pennsylvania. At this time, my son was already graduated eighth grade in Catholic school and my daughter was nine. And we just up and moved. And my dad cried for days and days and days. And my mom was like, oh, don't worry, we'll have a place to go, you know. And I would just assume that they were coming out here. My dad worked for a printing company. He was going to retire and they were moving out to Pennsylvania eventually. But it didn't work that way. A week before we settled on the house, my dad passed away with a major heart attack. And a week later, I had to leave my mom alone and go to Pennsylvania to my new home, my new life. And it was so hard. And then um, in 1990, I had my third child. And I remember when I told my mom I was pregnant, she started crying because my dad wasn't there to experience the third grandchild. And that was painful. She actually uh, is, is pretty tough. Uh, she survived tuberculosis when she was 18. And um, 1997, she had a heart attack um, with two stents. She survived that. She had two knees replaced at the same time, and she survived that. Then we started to notice like the dementia starting um, and it got to the point where we weren't comfortable leaving her alone. We took care of her for I would say close to three or four years and it was hands-on care. I mean it was everything. It was showers, it was um, incontinence and, and dealing with that and the dementia, but there were times she was lucid. There were times when, you know, um, she did not like taking showers though. We <laughs> had to set timers and it was just sometimes, I mean, we laughed, you know, all together about it, but my husband and I took care of her. And then it got to a point where she had gotten sick um, because of her lungs from the scarring of the TB it would always be worse than her. So we brought her to the doctor and he said, um, she needs to go to the hospital. So we put her in the hospital and she was there quite a long time, like almost four weeks. And they spoke to me, uh, the social worker came in and said, we understand you're taking care of your mom. And I said, yeah. And at this point it was getting very hard. It was getting to the point where she really needed more care and skilled care. So they said, well, we would like to put her in rehab first, but do you feel that you can handle her coming home? 
And I was really hesitant because here is the moment where you have to decide. And it's a hard decision. But I, I had to decide what was best for her, what was safe for her. And I said, I think I've reached the point where I probably can't. So I had to make the decision to put her in a nursing home. Okay, so, so hold on. This is a pivotal moment when you're transitioning from being the child to being the caretaker. And I, I have this image of a woman pushing a baby in a stroller and then 60, 70, maybe 80 years later, that child is now pushing the mother in a wheelchair. Um, can you talk about, was there a moment that it suddenly became a reality to you that you were now the caretaker, that this woman who cared for you and nurtured you and changed your diapers and took you to school and did all these things that now, you know, you are the, the person who is going to care for her. Well, yes, and it wasn't at the nursing home, actually. It was when we were home, we had to move into an apartment, and my husband, myself, and my mom, and my youngest son. I was taking care of my mom, and as I said before, she didn't like showers. So when it was time to take a shower, she would be, oh my gosh, throwing her hands up in the air, cussing, and she'd say, you're the the commander-in-chief. And I should salute you. And I just like, I couldn't, you know, help but laugh. I said, well, I said, yep, yeah, I am the commander in chief. She goes, everything has to be your way or the highway. I said, yep, right now. I said, it has to be. Uh, and um, <laughs> that's how we, I you know, we that. worked out the showers. Um, I remember you telling And me then that. if all else failed, I'd say, uh, you know, my husband, Jay, could give you a shower. And she said, no. She said, let's just go take a shower. And that's that's how it ended. But yeah, I became the parent. I was never the parent, you know, to her. So that was very, very bittersweet for me. Let's, let's, let's fast forward to uh, the next phase of life where we're moving into the nursing home. By the grace of God, uh, we found a home. They gave me a choice of two, and I picked one, and it was Mount Hope Nazarene. And I felt so good, like, leaving there, that she was in such good hands. And they loved my mother. I mean, my mom was, she was really a piece of work. She, um, you know, when they played the organ, she'd be singing, and she'd be the only one in there. In fact, when I'd come to visit her, I'd be coming down the stairs, and I'd hear her in the day room singing, and she just loved that. And she sang all the old songs, and um, a lot of them she remembered the words, which was pretty good. So um, that's how we spent, you know, the last uh, four years of her life. You know, she was my best friend. She was my best friend. She was everything to me. And I, I would always confide in her from the beginning to during my teen years, even if I knew I would get yelled at and grounded, I'd still tell her everything I did. 
So when she went into the nursing home with dementia, it was kind of hard because I was going through a very rough time, my husband and I, and I just needed her to talk to. And she'd ask me every time I go, is everything okay? Is everything okay? And I'd say, yeah, everything's okay, you know. And then I'd start pouring my heart out to her because I was, I was going through a really bad depression. And one particular time I was very upset. And sometimes she would repeat things and not really uh, keep up with what I was saying. But this particular day, she was so lucid. I was so amazed again by the grace of God. She was so lucid and she was giving me advice and she was just really, we spoke for about an hour and a half. It was like a different, it was such a different, um, I don't know, bittersweet to see her, you know, like that. Why don't you talk a little bit about your experience um, in the last days? It was kind of surreal because she had survived so many things, including in the nursing home. She survived pneumonia twice where they thought she wouldn't make it, and she did make it. So this time, they were still saying, you know, well, you know, she could still pull through. And But I kind of knew that she was tired and had enough. The decline was very quick. I would say over a week and a half or so. So they said to me, you know, if you have anyone, any family members that want to see her, you should bring them in now because we don't know, you know. So that's when I called you and Chelsea and said to bring the kids down. She, there was a kind of a bug going around, so we didn't want the kids going in the room. And my mom was kind of in it and out of it, you know, at this point. She would answer yes and no. And I said, Mom, I said, you know, Jason's here. Oh, Jason's here. Uh, you know, I call my son Jason. And I said, and the kids are right out the hall. I said, can you see them? And she looked and she was waving to them. I mean, like for a while and she saw them. Now, my mom had macular de degeneration and she couldn't see that good. But this particular moment, she saw them. Uh, that was a pretty special moment. Then uh, the priest came that night to give her, well, last rites, or we call it for the journey, you know, the last blessing and rites. And she said her Hail Mary. She knew every single word. So it never ceases to amaze me, the fact that she saw the kids. She said the Hail Mary word for word. You know, God is so good. He just allows these things. It was it was very comforting to see that. So the next couple of days was rough for her. When you and the kids were there, you know, she was answering and but as the days went by, she stopped answering. And then she did head motions and hand motions. And then that stopped. And then she just kind of uh, blinked her eyes a couple of times. So I knew, I knew that it was getting close. So then we, we, we arrive at Tuesday, the day she passed away. I remember going there that morning. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, that day? Okay. Yeah, that's right. I remember that day. Um, it was a Tuesday. You had come down in the morning to see her and you said the rosary with her. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you left, and then um, Dad and I came in the afternoon, 
we were sitting there the whole time with her. You know, I was sitting on the bed with her, holding her hand. Um, she wasn't really responding at this point. So they were giving her morphine and it was very peaceful though. It was a very peaceful transition. Uh, so it was getting very cold in the room and I told my, you know, I told dad, I said, let's go out for a walk. And he said, all right. So we went out for a walk. It was a hot day. And I said, let's go back now. So we went back to the room. Dad said, no, he said, let's go to eat something now. So, the, you know, the nurses that were there, they said, well, why don't you do that? You know, we'll, we're going to get her all cleaned up and everything. And when you come back, she'll be fresh and clean. And I said, I don't know. I said, I really want to stay. And they said, no, go get something to eat. She'll be fine. So we went to a restaurant. It was 10 minutes away. I knew the lady there and she was very good. She, you know, knew my mom was not doing well. And we ordered. And while we were waiting for the order, I got a phone call. And it was the nurse, Bob, who was very close with my mom. And he said, your mom just passed. And I was like, it could, that couldn't be. I said, we were just there. He said, I know, I know. I kind of froze for a moment and I was not there. It was like I was not there. So we went back and we had to cancel the order and we went back and I just wanted to go in there. So I went in and there she was, just very peaceful, but just not there anymore. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. After the break, we'll hear more from Farah about losing her mother. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. We now return to the conversation between Jay and his mother, Farah. You know, they say when your parents get older, uh, it's a relief or it's, you know, it's easier and it's not easy. I, for some reason, have not been able to cry for the past uh, 10 years. I don't know why, but I went in there and I just sat there with her. I sat on the bed next to her and um, I had my arm around her and her mouth was still open and I was trying to close it, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't close. And that's when I realized, you know, there is no more control here. You know, I can't help her. I can't do these things anymore. And dad left the room and I just, I just started crying and crying and crying. I don't know how long I was there crying, just hugging her and crying. And I was just saying these things that you don't realize, you know, that you ever say, like, telling her how much I'm going to miss her and how beautiful she she is and how I love her so much and things that sometimes you're a little uncomfortable to say to someone and I just they were just coming out like I'm going to miss you please look over me when you're you know when you're up there and please take care of us when you're up there and just all these things you know uh, it's just like you're in a different dimension, kind of. And you are, in a sense, that you are with someone who has gone to, to a different place. And you're kind of there with them because now they are no longer on your level at all. 
it was very sorrowful but very comforting to be there holding her like that and she yeah she was very cold I kept covering her with the blanket still wanting to take care of her but I said you know this is life this is how life ends and this is how her new beginning starts so it was okay did you feel a sense of relief and perhaps guilt at the same time at, at your I don't know what you mean like oftentimes I've, I've heard in these interviews and Edwards asked many people and the result is that people tend to feel this guilt for feeling relief and and what's unique here is that we're dealing with someone who's who's elderly you know I can imagine that when a person's younger and they're and they're they're dying of a disease and you're praying that they're gonna get well or you know whatever your will is God but you're still praying that they might recover in a situation where they're where they're elderly we're not pouncing back here so at that point your, your prayer is just for them to have a peaceful uh, journey a peaceful transition well um, I I really wasn't praying that she would get better and pull out of this I was praying that she was ready and she was ready I could see it by her face and by her answering when she could uh, she was just ready we were the, just there to see her off that's all and it's just a, it's just an odd sort of feeling because it's 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 bittersweet but i'm wondering if there's there was any guilt associated with that even though she was older of course i felt guilt i think everybody does and i the main thing i felt guilty for was not you know visiting her enough they told me, you know, you were here, you know, you were here a lot. But there were times where I wouldn't see her for two weeks and I would never go there when I was sick. There's always guilt, I think. So, yeah, I, f I felt guilty that I didn't go there enough. I didn't stay long enough. But, I mean, I think even if you're there 24-7, you can always say, well... You know, I didn't talk enough while I was there for 24 hours. Or, I, you know, I think you, you can always find the guilt. You can, if you look hard enough for it, you can find it. We, we of course, are going to have this, but we can't be too hard on ourselves either. It seems as people get older, they tend to have more of a lighthearted view of death. And I know Granny always joked a lot in the, in the nursing home about her about her death she'd say oh you know you're just sitting here waiting for the <laughs> waiting for the day did you find that she joked or talked more casually about death as she progressed in years yeah oh yeah in fact when we pre-planned her funeral 13 years ago we went to the funeral home and we knew the funeral director and we just had like a great time it was it sounds strange but um yeah, it is strange, but it was... Yeah, but in the nursing home, I mean, she was, even before that, she always made some jokes. <laughs> I'm sitting here with all these old people. I don't understand. <laughs> and when we'd tell her her age, you know, because we'd be talking, and she'd say, well, how old am I? And I'd say, Mom, you're like 96, 90. Oh, you got to be kidding. You're full of it. <laughs> and we just laugh. I mean... You know, she loved to see us laugh. So 
she would say things. Sometimes they weren't very, you know, candid. And I mean, no, having no, no. all the Mennonites there, I was like, oh, yeah. Mom, you know, the language. Here comes the Catholic, here come the heretics. <laughs> but, she, but they loved her. They just loved her. Well, as we near the end of the interview, it, it's kind of become a, a tradition here on how we grieve to ask, have you found anything that people said to you unhelpful in your grieving process? And I know that might seem a little strange because we're dealing with someone who is so elderly, but I even found people telling me things like, oh, well, she had a good run, and well, she was 97. She was, And while I understand that, and, I, and I've been guilty of saying the same things, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, this death marked the end of an era for our family, and it was... It was still a loss. So did you find that people have said things to you that were helpful or unhelpful? Um, not that I could remember, actually. No, not really. It, sometimes, like, when I say, she was 97, they go, oh, well. Like, well, <laughs> it's not, oh, well, to me. It's, you know, she was 97, and I miss her. One thing that strikes me about the fact that we've lost so many relatives at such an old age, I, I think about my grandfather, Gramps, right? When he passed away, it was so sudden, and I was so young. And I had uh, his legacy, the way he lives on in my imagination. I mean, I don't think there's a person in, in this world, at least within our family, that would ever say he was anything less than an, a, a remarkable human being. But the fact is, I was young when he passed away, and I never experienced, I, I didn't, I wasn't old enough to really build any resentment towards him or to, to find any reason to not like him. And I'm just using that as an example, but you've known Granny your entire life. My and entire life. The, one of the curses of getting old, and we'll, we'll just say for lack of a better term, a curse, because I can't think of a better word. It's not really a curse, but one of the curses of, of, of growing old is that there's all this opportunity to build up resentment oh, and yeah. to find reasons to dislike one another because you're going through life and life is difficult and life is challenging. And for someone like Granny, she's watched all of her relatives pass away and she's watched, I mean, you know, come on, the big scene at the Italian funeral, right? There's always some kind of relative who won't talk to you anymore. And, and, and you, go, you go through life seeing all these, these, these horrible things and, and the brokenness and and sure there's a lot of beauty in life and i know you right up to the end had a great love for one another but was there any was there any resentment was there any anger bitterness tiredness frustration no no not at all we had our moments though don't you know don't get me wrong there was sometimes lots of yelling going on and storming out of the rooms and stuff like that but We'd get over it because we knew how precious the bonds are. And of course, absolutely. But, you know, in the nursing home where things start to get difficult and things are said, the frustration, you know, the frustration you felt at the moment you had to, you had to release her to the social worker and, and, and bring her to the nursing home. Because I know speaking with other, other folks that I know who've had parents and grandparents that have gotten old, it's very challenging. It's very tiring. And, and sometimes there's a little resentment built up 
not only by the caretaker, but by the person being cared for. Well, she could have done that in the nursing home, but she didn't. That's when a lot of people are very resentful, older people, and she just made the best of everything. That was her nature. Yeah, she complained sometimes, but who doesn't complain? You know, she could get angry. She had a temper, but she kind of mellowed in her older age, maybe. No, maybe not. <laughs> but yeah, she she never not talked to someone because of so i mean she never really had that resentment i mean it was an italian family and there are kind of some you know guidelines and rules in the italian world but um she was very protective of her family and other than that she would get angry but it was never for good and she was a very faithful woman also so she yeah. um Mary Drago she definitely lived she up did. to her name. She really did. She she prayed a lot and she, you know, she had a lot of faith in God and and I no am so grateful to her for that. Uh and my grandmother too. I mean, they were faithful women and that is the best gift that they gave me that my mom gave me. Um and and the way she brought me up being that my faith, I'm very strong in my faith now, much stronger than I was. And I just, I just was so comfortable with, I knew she had such a peaceful death. And I knew that she was with my dad now and with God. And I was just so, so comforted by that. And I, did, I hardly cried. The next couple of days during the, you know, the, the viewing and the wake and the church service, I, I just was so peaceful. Well, it's funny because you know that day is coming and you know, I've been mentally preparing myself for years, but it still was very difficult to see my grandmother who practically raised me, um, you know, along with you in this helpless position. Just, mm -hmm. just, just dying. There was nothing we could do. It was just a, a difficult thing to see, even right. though you know it's it's coming. Yeah, well, of course, because we couldn't do anything for her. But I felt now that you know my my father is doing for her. God is doing for her. Uh, she's seeing all her deceased siblings and everyone, and I was so happy for her. I felt so happy for her at that point. I was just saying, oh, Mom, you know, Dad, I wish I could just have, like, one more day back in Queens when I was younger with you, both of you. Just one more day. And to relive the times with, you know, with when the kids were little and Dad was here. Just one more day. But It just seems like time moved at a different pace back then. It seemed like we just watched the hours go by. Life just seems so much simpler. It's just sad to think it'll never be that way ever again. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you kind of, when you're younger, you can't wait for life to get on with it. And then when you're older, it's kind of like, ah, you know, what's the rush? How We Grieve is hosted and written by Edward Herrera. 
with production help, original music, editing, and creative direction by Jay Lampart. Special thanks to our guests for sharing their stories of loss and hope. To learn more, visit our website, howwegrieve.org. This has been a production of the Archdiocese of Baltimore.